Hello and welcome to 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. Autumn is truly with us now, but who can forget those balmy August evenings of 2023? Well, anyone in this part of the world certainly can, as it rained just about every day. But we don't live here for the weather. It's the people, obviously. And on August 23rd, we were all in the black box for stories of one summer. She couldn't quite be convinced that her chances of getting eaten alive by sharks in Loch Foil was pretty slim. It was then that I saw, in the middle of the room, it was huge. It was magnifique. The Grand Lee. It was the grandest Lee I've ever seen. It was about 11 o'clock at night at this stage. And a few stops down, this man gets on the train wearing glasses. And then nothing else but a small pair of speedos. What an eyeful. So get ready for disaster on Loch Foyle, bedroom frolics in France, and an unforgettable trip on the London Underground. But first... A big shout out to Siobhan McGuigan, who became a 10 by 9 patron this week. Many thanks, Siobhan. You can, if you like, donate via Patreon to help cover some of our costs. The link is on our website, 10by9.com. Okay, let's get stuck in, and our first story comes from a first-timer. Here's Claire O'Connor. My friend Alice's family have always been impeccably good hosts. Theirs was always the party house. At the start of our drinking career, we drank cheap wine and all manner of ridiculous coloured cocktails in her kitchen, before heading out to our one and only nightclub, Sugar, R.I.P., in the hope that, in the hope that we get past the bouncers with our sister's friend's cousin's ID. Her mum was always eager to hear the gossip, and we used to call in and see her, even after we'd all gone off to university, and Alice wasn't even in the house. Both of her parents are originally from Donegal, and they bought a holiday house there in Greencastle when they retired. On a whim, her parents decided to buy a jet ski for the kids right in time for the summer break and had invited us all down to try it out. We did notice pretty early on in our school days that Alice was definitely our rich friend, but we didn't hold it against her. It was the summer after I did my university finals and miraculously all the girls were in the same place at the same time. Allow me to give you a bit of background about my own parents. They're wonderful people, truly wonderful. They're also incredibly risk-averse and bandaged me and my siblings very tightly in cotton wool when we were growing up. Bikes were permitted under controlled circumstances, but no go-karts, no trampolines, definitely no rollerblades. I'd hardly been on a pedal boat, never mind a jet ski. My dad's heart rate rose rapidly when we got within 50 metres of an open body of water, and he usually took morbid delight in telling us horror stories of other people's near misses. So, imagine the forbidden thrill I felt at the prospect of tearing through Loch Foyle on the back of this death machine. <laughs> I was the first of us six girls to volunteer to jump on the back for the maiden voyage behind Alice's brother, Thomas. What we didn't know until some hours later was that the jet ski in question was at least ten years old and the previous owners had had a somewhat lax approach to getting it serviced. My friend Katie stood beside us on the pier sick with nerves at the prospect of taking her turn. Despite our best efforts to convince her otherwise, she couldn't quite be convinced that her chances of getting eaten alive by sharks in Loch Foyle was pretty slim. 
I might add that not only was she 23 at the time, she'd just taken a job as a cognitive behavioural therapist. And she has a special clinical interest in irrational phobias. I donned my life jacket. My dad would have been so proud. Not that I would ever tell him about the trip, but still. The first ten minutes or so out in the water flew by. Initially, I thought seasickness was going to get the better of me, but my stomach adjusted to the motion of the boat. I loved it, and I had no objections when Thomas started to go faster and further out into the lock, zigzagging and splashing us both with water. We laughed at how ridiculous Katie was being, although I did make him promise not to wind her up too much about the sharks when he took her out next. The figures on the shore became smaller and smaller. This is the kind of thing my dad warned me against, I thought, and tossed my head in the wind like the renegade that I quite clearly was. <laughs> I felt calmer now, less seasick, and it took a while to realise that the jet ski was starting to slow down. We told each other we should have brought a beer to complete the experience. Whether it was the yearning for beer or a growing hunger for dinner, I started to get a bit restless. I did the calculations. There were five more of us, and if it took everyone at least 15 minutes each, by the time we were all done and got the jet ski back to the house, it'd be at least two hours before any food or drink would pass my lips. So I nudged Thomas back into action to go back to shore. He turned the ignition of the engine, and I waited for the familiar roar. It only made a sorry, desolate hiss like a wet fart. <laughs> he frowned and tried again, more of the same. We tried again and again. We were momentarily relieved when the engine propelled us forward in the water a few metres, only to splutter to a halt again soon after. The figures on the shore, far from the pier that we'd set off from, now appeared to be waving their arms at us. They had seemed to realise, before we had, that the rusty ten-year-old engine on the jet ski had flooded, and that we weren't going anywhere quickly. I told him to ring his dad. His phone was in the watertight compartment above the engine, but he shook off the suggestion, wanting to save face, filled with a wholly unfounded confidence that comes with being 21 and, dare I say it, a man. <laughs> a few minutes later, a small fishing boat came sailing alongside us, sensing a, dis a disturbance in the force. The lone fisherman looked at us with gentle concern. Instead of jeering at these clueless northerners that were clearly in trouble in his patch, he very graciously asked us if we were all right and needed a hand. We mumbled yes and he said he'd throw us a line. I looked at him blankly, wondering what on earth this meant. Thomas knew to grab the rope at the front of the boat. Bingo, I thought. Thomas had spent a decade going on daring expeditions with the scouts, so surely tying knots would be wee bums for him. Hmm. He must have been off six from the scouts for that particular lesson. <laughs> with more ultimately unfounded confidence, he tied the knot, and the fisherman revved his engine to tow our boat. I watched as the pathetic knot loosened and came apart as the bigger boat moved, unable to withstand the weight of pulling ours. Of course, I had spent a large chunk of my childhood years reading novels indoors and avoiding sharp objects, so my knot tying skills weren't really up to scratch either. Again and again, the jet ski bobbed around as the knot and the rope separated and came apart. The fisherman's patience was starting to wear thin. I felt like the stupidest person on earth. I was starting to panic, just a little. Thomas was fumbling for his phone, about to ring his dad. I certainly wasn't about to ring my dad. <laughs> and never, ever hear the end of it. 
but we turned around, and there it was. A large, obnoxiously orange inflatable boat charging towards us on the horizon, with those dreaded words emblazoned on the side. Donegal Coast Guard. <laughs> we looked at each other, defeated, and laughed. Returning in this way felt like social suicide. But we accepted our fate and filed onto the rescue boat with the jet ski in tow behind us. We cringed as they wrapped us in those flimsy tinfoil first aid cloaks <laughs> so we wouldn't get hypothermia in July and 20 degrees heat with heavy life jackets on. The rescuers, always professional and a tad overdramatic, declared the success of the rescue mission over the radios. Two casualties have been successfully recovered. <laughs> no serious injuries. Only dying of shame when we got back to the pier and were forced to disembark in front of what seemed like a hundred people. This was clearly the most exciting thing that had happened in the village all week, maybe even all month, and no one was going to miss out on the action. It turns out that Alice's dad wasn't too bothered. It was a concerned member of the public that had recognised our plight and rang the Coast Guard. Perhaps the lady we'd spotted in the distance, frantically waving her arms at us. Of course, Alice's dad was remarkably blasé about the whole thing, telling us we'd really done the Coast Guards a favour and the call-out had probably secured their funding for the rest of the season. <laughs> we spent the rest of the evening getting ripped to shreds by the rest of our friends for the rescue we'd endured. Later on, they howled with laughter yet again as the local radio channel announced the day's news. <laughs> One jet ski recovered from lock foil. Both passengers stable and not believed to have life-threatening injuries. <laughs> and I still haven't told my dad, of course. Claire, thank you so much. I, I just thought your mother must be so proud when you said about the start of your drinking career. It's not the thing every parent wants to hear. Claire, you were wonderful. A chip off the old block and just as brilliant. Claire's mother is 10 by 9 regular Gloria O'Connor, and you can find some of Gloria's stories on previous podcasts. I'd like to hear more from you both. And if, like Claire and Gloria and all our contributors, you have a story to tell or even just an idea for a story, then get in touch and I'll help you to make it happen. We are always, always looking for new storytellers. Okay, let's get on to our second story, and it's from the voice of Cork. Here's Tampa 9 regular, Richard O'Leary. It was the summer of 1989 in Belfast, and I had fallen in love. Fallen in love, not with Belfast, that would come later. I'd fallen in love with a northerner. In the 1980s, when you were from the far south, Cork like me, Anyone from Belfast seemed exotic. <laughs> Ours was a sort of, I can't keep my hands off you sort of love. The, it must be a whole hour since we last kissed sort of love. That summer with my new Belfast lover was great. It was great except for one thing. There's always a catch when you meet a new hot lover. This was during the Troubles, and we were what was called a mixed couple. Anyway, this Catholic, Protestant, Irish, British violence thing in the North, it was a bit of a damper on our love life. 
especially during the summer marching season. <laughs> but we had a great plan, which wasn't original to us. It was that we escaped the North in July for holiday. And no, we didn't go to Newcastle County Down. <laughs> I proposed that we go to the continent, which is what we did, taking the car ferry via England. On our way to Portsmouth, we broke our journey for an overnight in the town of Gloucester. I'll always remember Gloucester because it was there that we had a little incident. It wasn't a lover's tiff. It wasn't even our fault. In Gloucester, we pulled up outside the only visible sign for a bed and breakfast. I went to the door of the B&B and rang the doorbell. And a man opened the door, the B&B owner. And I said hello and asked him, do you have a double room for the night? He replied, yes, I do. I said, great, I'll just go and get our bags from the car. When we returned to the hallway with our bags, the man took a look at us and said, oh, you're two men. I can't let two men have the room. It's a double. But we'd like a double room, I told him. No, he insisted. You'd have to take two separate rooms. Two separate rooms? At that time, the law permitted accommodation providers to discriminate against gay customers. And it was too late at night to find other accommodation. So that summer's night, in the corridor of the B&B, I said goodnight to my hot Belfast boyfriend, <laughs> Mervyn. <laughs> I slept in one room in a double bed alone. And Mervyn had to sleep in a separate room in a double bed alone. The following morning, we couldn't wait to leave Gloucester. And I've never gone back. We drove to Portsmouth, and I can recall all this because I have the ferry tickets. <laughs> P&O European Ferries, Portsmouth to Cherbourg, 13th of June, 1989. On the ticket is written a note on what to pack. It says, Walkman. That makes a lot of sense if you lived in the 1980s and hairdryer. That does surprise me. I wouldn't have thought I was a pack hairdryer type of guy, but maybe going out with someone caused me to up my game. <laughs> and of course, in those days, I still had a full head hair. As soon as we arrived in Cherbourg, we drove directly to view a famous French tourist site, the site of the walled island abbey of Le Mont Saint-Michel. Very romantic. And Mervyn took this photo of me, a photo with Le Mans Saint-Michel in the background. <laughs> Notice I'm wearing socks in what I thought were the French colors, blue, white, and red. But Mervyn pointed out that I had already adopted the British red, white, and blue. I told you we were a mixed couple. We still had to find accommodation for the night. And this being France, the land of liberté, égalité, fraternité, I was hoping that it might be more liberal than England, that France might be the land of the double bed. <laughs> we stopped the car outside a public phone box 
and Mervyn took out his copy of the French guy bed and breakfast called Sean Bedot. At that time, I didn't speak any French, um, but Mervyn had O-level French from Grosvenor High School in East Belfast. <laughs> so it was Mervyn who was going to have to make the phone call. And he stepped into the phone box, and I squeezed in next to him, just as well I was slim. And Mervyn pushed into the telephone coin slot a French franc and dialed a number and waited till it was answered. And then he spoke in his best French accent. Allo, allo. <laughs> that was the easy part. Ça c'est la chambre d'hôte. A lady answered in French. Oui, monsieur. Mervyn asked, Avez-vous une chambre pour s'asseoir pour deux personnes? Which translates as, do you have a room for this evening for two persons? But you probably know that. I'd say you're a sophisticated audience. <laughs> the French lady replied in French, pour deux personnes, bien sûr. And she continued, j'ai un grand lit, ça va? Mervyn answered, un grand lit, ça va bien. Mervyn gave me the thumbs up. When we arrived at the house at the Chambre d'Ote, Mervyn went to the door and rang the bell. A woman opened the door and said, Bonsoir. No, sorry, Mervyn said, Bonsoir, madame. <laughs> she led us along a corridor and she opened the door of a room. It was a bedroom, decorated in French rustic style. It was then that I saw, in the middle of the room, it was huge, it was magnifique. The Grand Lee. It was the grandest Lee I've ever seen. And maybe you don't believe me. Would you like to see a photo of it? This photo. The bed was decorated with drape curtains, like a bed you see in the movie. A bed fit for a queen, even two queens. We loved that bed. <laughs> it was très romantique, so much so that we stayed and booked for a second night, which is why I will never forget that one summer, the summer of the Grand Lee. I'm a little disappointed, Richard. I almost expected you to have the bed. Brilliant as always, Richard. I'll post the photo of the bed on social media. The grandest of Grand Lee. Merci beaucoup. I don't need to repeat the bit about Tambanine always being free, as I did it earlier, pretty much. So let's just move on to our third summer story on this podcast. Here's Fiona Malloy. The summer of 1988 was hot and sticky, as I remember it. I had one year done of a university degree in England, and some, but not all, of the naive country edges had been smoothed off me. I was lucky enough to get a chance to stay with a relative in London in order to work for the summer. London was exciting for an almost 20-year-old, full of hustle and bustle, diverse people and interesting sights. I was working for an agency in bars in the evenings and sometimes even serving drinks on the boats up and down the Thames. My day jobs weren't quite so glamorous, 
as I would either be working in a roadside burger van or serving on the tills at the back of the Dorchester Hotel where a major refurbishment was going on and I was putting the snacks and lunches through for the workmen and the labourers in a makeshift canteen. I think I remember that I was getting £2 an hour in the burger van, but all was more in tips. The owner said that I was good for business. <laughs> the male customers kept coming back just to get a listen to the lilting accent of the red-haired young Irish girl. Some of the attentions I got would probably be regarded as rather un-PC nowadays, but that's how it was in those days. I had been courting, as we say in Tyrone, a Dublin guy before I left for England, and I wasn't what you might call totally faithful to the Dublin man, if the truth be told. I didn't commit any heinous adultery or anything, but I had been enjoying the attentions of men from all parts and places in the world since I'd been at university many of whom also seemed quite enamoured with the Irish accent, and that summer in London was no different. I suppose you could just say I hadn't closed off all my options yet. And to be fair, who does, or who should, at 19? But I had already got myself into a wee bit of bother on the university campus at that stage, entertaining the attentions of various would-be suitors. I just didn't understand how serious English men were. There was a whole different code of conduct in England than there was in Cookstown on a Saturday night, for example. <laughs> to take a case in point, it was regarded as completely acceptable at Clubland or the Glenavon to snog more than one boy of an evening. <laughs> Indeed, there had been competitions on occasion as to who could snog the most. A competition I am now proud to say that I never won. However, I simply wasn't appraised of, nor used to, the protocols around these matters in England. Getting back to the summer of 88 in London, I was the kind of person that was talking to people on trains on tubes, getting into conversations at bus stops, and generally making lots of new best friends. I remember going out for a meal with one guy after a tube journey, who asked me to come back to Canada with him there and then, and live in his large bungalow that had a hot tub where I could look after him, whatever that meant. And this was just after one meal out. Those were the days. So, I came across this South African guy who I really quite fancied. I honestly can't remember how, it may well have been another train journey. And he asked me to meet him way across town at the far side of London. I had to take a train and various tubes to get there. I arrived to find, well, that he hadn't. He hadn't bothered his horse, and I was stood up. I had to start back on all the same tubes and trains, and at Charing Cross Station, on the last leg of the journey, I decided to buy myself a big bag of pick and mix, just to console myself. It was about 11 o'clock at night at this stage, and a few stops down, this man gets on the train, wearing glasses, and then nothing else but a small pair of Speedos whilst also carrying what looked like an expensive suit on a hanger, and he sits down beside me. I'm trying not to look, of course, but I feel his eyes boring into my lap, where the pick and mix were. So of course I says, do you want one? And he says, I'm starving. Not like that, of course, because I'm not good at accents. And I says, Take as many as you want. 
A brief conversation ensues where we exchange pleasantries, i.e. he asks me, what do you do? And I said, it's a very unglamorous job. And he says, are you a prostitute? <laughs> when he got off the train a few stops down at Greenwich, he made a prolonged enough stare at me through the window and I'm laughing to myself and thinking, well, that was weird. He only knew two things about me and that was that my name was Fiona and that I worked at the Dorchester Hotel. The very next day, <laughs> I'm sitting on the till out the back of the Dorchester with the workmen and someone comes down from the architect's office upstairs with a name and a number on a piece of paper and says to me, are you Fiona? I'm not joking, I started to shake as I didn't recognise the name on the piece of paper and of course I thought somebody was dead at home. I was thrown into confusion at the same time because nobody at home knew where I was working at any one time. So how could this be? The girl carrying the message saw my face drain of colour and took me straight up to the architect's office to call the number. There were no mobile phones in those days, people. I called the number in trepidation and when I finally got through, with the faces of about 10 concerned professionals staring at me in that office, the voice on the other end of the phone says to me, remember me from last night? Underpants. <laughs> well, shocked and scundered wouldn't be in it. I had to agree to give him my number just to get off the phone and to take my redner back downstairs with me as quickly as possible. So I ended up meeting up with this guy soon after. And over time, all others fade into the distance for a good while. We married. <laughs> and spent seven years together and had two kids, one of whom is in the audience this evening. <laughs> it didn't all happen necessarily in that order, but that's another story. <laughs> and some of you may have heard it already. For those of you who don't like loose ends, like Paul here, he did explain about the Speedos. He'd come straight from Brighton that day where his, his mum ran a pub off the coast. But one thing we always marvelled at was that he told me he had moved the length of about two carriages on the platform that night to avoid some raucous drunk. Sliding doors wouldn't be in it. Thank you so much, Fiona. It's amazing what you can come across on the tube. And yes, indeed, I really needed to know why he was on a train in his trunks. Great story. And that is it for this podcast. Check out all the 10 by 9 upcoming dates on our website, which includes some special events over the coming months. And keep in touch with us on Twitter, or some of you may say X. Facebook, and Instagram. Maybe think about giving the podcast a review or rating at a podcast app. It's very helpful if you can. And tell as many people as you can about 10 by 9 and the 10 by 9 podcast. Thanks to everyone who makes 10 by 9 happen. Margaret McClory, Leanne McConville, and Chris O'Donoghue, all of whom I would be lost without. The wonderful people of The Black Box, our home venue since 2011, our gorgeous, warm, and generous audience. All our amazing storytellers, of course, but especially Claire O'Connor, Richard O'Leary and Fiona Malloy. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye.